Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is Don't Worry Baby, where we discuss perioperative implications and drug choices for patients undergoing anaesthesia and who are currently breastfeeding. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. In August of 2020, the Association of Anaesthetists of Great Britain and Ireland released their updated guidelines for the provision of anaesthesia and sedation in breastfeeding patients. And with the World Health Organization's recommendation that breastfeeding should be exclusive for the first six months of life and continued with the co-administration of food until a child is two years of age, our odds of providing care for breastfeeding patients are higher than you might think. With this in mind, we thought it important to take a close look at these latest recommendations. The discussion to follow is almost exclusively reiterating the contents of these guidelines. Be sure to check the show notes for a link to the original article. The advice given to breastfeeding patients perioperatively often varies from one anaesthetist to another. It potentially results in an interruption to the normal process of breastfeeding for even beyond 24 hours or sees breast milk discarded due to concerns about drug transfer and the possible effects on the breastfeeding child. Out of curiosity, do you see breastfeeding patients coming in for surgical procedures very often? Well, look, I wouldn't say it's common, but we do see a fairly consistent smattering of breastfeeding patients that present for surgery in our hospital. And look, notably, ours isn't a maternity hospital at all. It's interesting talking to these women because often they say they get very different advice about what to do with breastfeeding perioperatively from different people. And by the time I see them, they're understandably really confused and apprehensive. What about you, Kate? Yeah, look, we certainly see breastfeeding patients from time to time. And I must say, I've never felt very adequately prepared to provide really good up-to-date advice. So I'm glad we're doing this episode today. Fair enough, fair enough. Now, even though there are many healthcare professionals that weigh in and give advice about breastfeeding perioperatively, keep in mind that as an anaesthetist, you are the expert on the drugs that you give and how they are handled by the body. So it's your responsibility to understand how your choices are affecting the physiology of the breastfeeding patient before you, but also to provide them with the correct information to ensure that both they and their breastfed infant are safe and enabled to continue breastfeeding. Now, you may not realise it, but there are actually an enormous number of potential issues that can arise when normal breastfeeding is interrupted. These include things like babies not being able to or refusing to drink express milk from a bottle or cup or refusing formula because it tastes different. A baby that's underfed and cries from hunger is a huge source of unnecessary stress to parents during what is likely an already stress-inducing perioperative course. Something else to consider is that replacing breast milk with formula in preterm infants can increase the risk of necrotizing enterocolitis. For the breastfeeding parent, an interruption to the ability to have an infant feed or to express can result in problems like engorgement, duct blockages and mastitis, all of which can be incredibly painful. 
as well as this, an interruption to the parent's ability to clear milk from their breasts can negatively affect milk supply in the future. That is, it can result in a reduction in milk supply. Now, if the child predominantly takes food with only one or two breastfeeds a day, then the impact may not be as great, but for an exclusively breastfed infant, this can be really detrimental. So let's jump right in and discuss these suggestions. There are 10 formal guidelines that are recommended by the authors when providing anesthesia for a breastfeeding patient. These are 1. Women should be encouraged to breastfeed as normal following surgery. 2. There is no need to express and discard breast milk after anesthesia. Now let's pause for a moment, mainly to reiterate the advice to pump and dump or discard breast milk that is expressed after having an anaesthetic is obsolete. Drug transfer into breast milk is primarily by paracellular transfer. This is where some components of interstitial fluid enter the lumen by moving between the alveolar cells of the breast lobule via tight junctions. Now, initially after birth, another process called diapedesis occurs, where immune cells can enter the milk through paracellular passage, which occurs across a transiently open tight junction that seals tightly behind the cell, leaving no permanent gap and no further movement across the junction. This process occurs in the immediate postpartum period and stops soon after, but can occur in people with mastitis, and this is relevant for later on. Guideline 3. Anesthetic and non-opioid analgesic drugs are transferred to breast milk in only very small amounts. For almost all drugs used perioperatively, there is no evidence of effects on the breastfed infant. So this is great news for us as anaesthetists, but we should address some of the specific drug groups here that we use commonly. It's a lot to digest, uh, but we'll try to keep things as relevant and concise as possible. Most intravenous hypnotic agents have poor bioavailability and short half-lives. 0.025% of administered propofol is transferred to breast milk, and this is not a concern even for patients receiving propofol infusions for anesthesia maintenance. Both Atomidate and Thiopentone's excretion into breast milk is very small. For all three of these drugs, breastfeeding can resume without a waiting period after administration. There is no data available about the transfer of ketamine into human breast milk, but it is thought to be low, and its rapid redistribution from plasma makes adverse effects in the infant unlikely. Other agents should be used if possible and ketamine avoided. If ketamine is used intraoperatively, then breastfeeding should be monitored closely with the mother advised to observe the infant for signs of drowsiness or poor feeding, and if these are seen, then a medical professional should be contacted immediately. Volatile agents are predominantly cleared by exhalation with a small amount of hepatic metabolism. With their short half-life and rapid clearance, their use does not interrupt the resumption of breastfeeding postoperatively. Simple analgesics like paracetamol and most NSAIDs may also be used perioperatively without affecting the rapid resumption of breastfeeding post-op. Though there is a wide range of studies quoting different doses of paracetamol that are excreted into breast milk, the amount ingested by the infant is significantly less than the paediatric therapeutic dose. Of the NSAIDs, ibuprofen, diclofenac, naproxen, celecoxib, catarolac and paracoxib are considered compatible with breastfeeding. The only exception is aspirin. After ingestion, salicylic acid is excreted into breast milk with higher maternal doses resulting in disproportionately higher milk levels. Long term, high dose maternal aspirin likely caused metabolic acidosis in one breastfed infant. Though aspirin administration to infants with viral infections is associated with the development of Reye's syndrome, the risk of Reye's syndrome from salicylic acid in breast milk is unknown. The advice here is to use an alternative NSAID for analgesia. Daily low-dose aspirin can be used as an antiplatelet in breastfeeding mothers, but if used, the infant should be monitored for bruising and bleeding. On to drugs that work at the neuromuscular junction. 
Both succimethonium and the non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking drugs have poor lipid solubility and poor oral bioavailability. They are ionized at a physiologic pH and will not be present in any meaningful amount in breast milk. As well as this, succimethonium is cleared rapidly from maternal circulation, adding to the unlikeliness of its meaningful presence in breast milk. Breastfeeding can resume once the patient has recovered from the neuromuscular blockade. Both neostigmine and sugammadex are considered safe to use during breastfeeding. Though no information is available on the clinical use of sugammadex during breastfeeding, it is a large, highly polar molecule, so the amount in milk is likely to be very low and oral absorption by the infant is unlikely. The antiemetics are a little interesting. The serotonin 5-HT3 receptor antagonists have no data addressing their transfer into breast milk. Ondansetron specifically has been reported as being compatible with breastfeeding, but the license suggests it should actually be avoided in breastfeeding. That said, it is licensed for use in children from six months of age, and the exposure to the infant through breast milk is believed to be lower than therapeutic doses administered. The presence of granisetron in breast milk is believed to be low. There is also no data on the transfer of dexamethasone into breast milk, although other corticosteroids have been used during breastfeeding with no evidence of adverse effects. Metoclopramide and domperidone are both used as galactagogues, so may increase milk supply. If these drugs are given, be sure that your breastfeeding patient has access to a breast pump if there is any delay in feeding the infant. Prochlorperazine has a low oral bioavailability due to extensive first-pass hepatic metabolism and is compatible for use with breastfeeding. For cyclozine, there is no data on which to base conclusions, but it is unlikely to produce adverse effects if used short-term. And now lastly, we'll touch on drugs acting to support the cardiovascular system. Of the anticholinergics, glycopyrrolate is the preferred antimuscarinic medication as it has poor oral bioavailability and is compatible with breastfeeding. Atropine 2 is considered compatible with breastfeeding, but as it is found in trace amounts in breast milk and is rapidly absorbed from the gastrointestinal tract, it may elicit antimuscarinic effects in the infant. It may also act to inhibit lactation. Basically, if you can avoid using atropine, you should do. Ephedrine administered acutely is unlikely to harm a breastfeeding infant, and phenylephrine with its poor oral bioavailability of 38% is not likely to produce clinical effects in a breastfed infant. And before we move on, a quick word about antibiotics. They're mostly used in short courses perioperatively, and generally there are no harmful effects in breastfeeding patients. If you intend to use a drug that hasn't been addressed within these guidelines or you'd like more information about specific drugs, a fantastic resource is the Drugs and Lactation Database called LactMed. It's freely available via the National Centre for Biotechnology Information website, also known as NCBI. Just punch the term LactMed, L-A-C-T-M-E-D, into your preferred search engine. We'll also provide a link in our episode notes. The fourth guideline is that drugs such as opioids and benzodiazepines should be used with caution, especially after multiple doses and in babies up to six weeks old, corrected for gestational age. In this situation, the infant should be observed for signs of abnormal drowsiness and respiratory depression, especially if the patient is showing signs of sedation. Again, apologies, as we're going to specifically talk through the pharmacokinetics of many of these drugs, which we know is a little on the dry side, but we'll try and keep things as slick and as relevant as possible. Starting with medications that are used for sedation, the two most common benzodiazepines we're likely to use are midazolam and diazepam. Midazolam undergoes extensive first-pass metabolism yielding low systemic drug concentrations, thus systemic levels in a breastfeeding infant are expected to be low. Breastfeeding can be resumed after a single dose of midazolam as soon as the breastfeeding parent has recovered from the procedure. 
Diazepam has an active metabolite, desmethyldiazepam, also called nordiazepam, which has a prolonged half-life. Both diazepam and desmethyldiazepam are known to be transferred to breast milk in significant levels, and their long half-lives mean that timing breastfeeding around specific doses is of no benefit. Though the guidelines don't specifically state whether the drug is breastfeeding compatible or not, Lactman states that it's possible to use diazepam cautiously when breastfeeding and that when given as a single dose prior to a procedure, there is usually no need to wait to resume breastfeeding. That said, a cautious approach in newborn or preterm infants would see breastfeeding resume after a delay of six to eight hours from the time of dosing. Honestly, though, I'd be inclined to avoid it altogether in breastfeeding patients. The excretion of dexmedetomidine in breast milk is unknown, and so this drug should be used with caution. Now we'll move on to the opioids, and there's a lot to unpack here. Starting with morphine, it's important to remember that morphine has an active metabolite. Remember this from the primary? Mm. Morphine-6-glucuronide, and this drug is more potent than the parent drug. These are secreted into breast milk in small amounts, but despite this, morphine is considered the opioid of choice in breastfeeding patients where strong analgesia is required. Regarding its use via PCA in this population, data is limited, but mainly limited to its use after cesarean section. In this setting, breastfed babies showed no sign of neurodevelopmental delay on day three following birth. Where repeated doses of morphine are used, the breastfed infant should be monitored for signs of sedation and respiratory depression, and this may be more likely if these signs are also visible in the parent. Now, it's worth mentioning here that dihydrocodeine is mentioned as the other opioid of choice for breastfeeding women in the UK and Ireland, but as it's not available in Australia other than as a cough suppressant in a single cough syrup, we won't discuss it further. We do encourage you to look more closely at the discussion about dihydrocodeine within the guidelines if it is a drug that you commonly use within your country. Okay, on to oxycodone. Its excretion in breast milk is high enough that breastfed infants may receive greater than 10% of a therapeutic dose. The risk of oxycodone causing sedation in infants is higher than most other drugs, and this risk is dose-related. Its metabolism is via the cytochrome P450-2D6 enzyme, in which there is a considerable population variation regarding the rate of its metabolism. Poor metabolizers may have a decreased clearance of oxycodone, whereas ultra-rapid metabolizers may have higher concentrations of the more potent metabolite oxymorphone and this can lead to sedation. Many case reports and studies have reported sedation, respiratory depression and difficulty feeding in breastfed infants of mothers prescribed oxycodone, particularly at doses greater than 30 milligrams a day. The advice is that repeated doses of oxycodone should be avoided with breastfeeding and caution is advised when giving this medication intraoperatively. The infant should be monitored for signs of sedation. Now, this creeped me out a little, particularly in the context of oxycodone's presence as a standard painkiller after caesarean section. That said, though, many women no longer require opioids at the time of discharge after elective caesarean section, and while they're in hospital, the neonates are closely monitored by the ward midwives. True. Breastfeeding is considered relatively acceptable after a single dose of intravenous fentanyl. Minimal amounts are detected in breast milk after a single dose, and its poor oral bioavailability is also favourable in this situation. The authors have extrapolated this advice to suit for alfentanyl as well. There are no published studies on remifentanyl and its effects on the breastfed infant. It has low oral bioavailability and its use in PCA form for labour analgesia due to its low context-sensitive half-time and minimal neonatal sedation suggests it is likely acceptable to use in lactating parents. 
Hydromorphone is a potent narcotic analgesic that should be used with caution in breastfeeding mothers. Though there is limited data regarding its safety in breastfeeding, a case report described respiratory depression requiring naloxone in a six-day-old neonate whose mother was administered four milligrams every four hours. And lastly, dipethidine. A breastfeeding patient may initiate breastfeeding as soon as they are awake and alert after a single dose intravenously. Keep in mind, though, that it too has a long-acting active metabolite, norpethidine. Lastly, let's discuss tramadol and clonidine. Both tramadol and its active metabolite, odesmethyltramadol, are excreted in breast milk and there have been case reports of respiratory depression and death associated with its use while breastfeeding. Although the US FDA advises against the use of this drug in breastfeeding parents, the UK Drugs in Lactation Advisory Service, or UK DILAS, recommends that tramadol can be used with caution during breastfeeding and that the infant must be monitored for increased sleepiness, respiratory depression, and decreased alertness. The authors advise that it may be appropriate to limit the use of tramadol to inpatient use only and to dose limit the drug. Regarding clonidine, it may actually reduce the secretion of prolactin from the posterior pituitary gland and could therefore reduce milk production. It is minimally excreted into breast milk and there are no reports of neonatal toxicity with breastfeeding. Now on to guideline five, which goes hand in hand with our discussion about analgesics. Codeine should not be used by breastfeeding women following concerns of excessive sedation in some infants related to differences in metabolism. I can't say I find this surprising, particularly since codeine phosphate is contraindicated in children under the age of 12 for the same reasons as we are about to discuss. Yeah, so true. Codeine is a prodrug that is metabolized to morphine by the cytochrome P452D6 enzyme. As we mentioned when discussing oxycodone earlier, there is considerable genetic polymorphism in this enzyme system, such that some individuals are poor metabolizers who will have very little analgesic effect, but there are also ultra-rapid metabolizers who will experience a very marked analgesic and side effects. Now, there is considerable ethnic variation contributing to the frequencies of variant alleles. In the European Caucasian population, 5-10% to 10 are poor metabolizers. This expression is even lower in people of Asian ethnicity. The proportion of ultra-rapid metabolizers is as high as 28% in Middle Eastern and Northern African populations. It sits at about 10% in Caucasians and 1% in Asian individuals. Codeine is secreted into breast milk due to its high lipophilicity and low protein binding. And when given to mothers that are ultra-rapid metabolizers can be present in higher concentrations in breast milk, which in extreme cases can lead to severe neonatal respiratory depression and death in the breastfed infant. Even though a large proportion of the population are considered to have normal metabolism of this drug, the advice by both the US Food and Drug Administration and the European Medicines Agency is to avoid it completely in breastfeeding parents as it is difficult to predict which patients possess variant alleles and who are thus more at risk of these complications. If a dose of codeine has been taken by a breastfeeding parent, then discarding breast milk for 15 hours should allow full clearance from maternal plasma and insignificant transfer to breast milk from this point onwards. The next five recommendations are fairly straightforward. They are that, and I quote, any woman with an infant under two years should be routinely asked if they are breastfeeding during their preoperative assessment. Opioid sparing techniques are preferable for the breastfeeding woman. Local and regional anesthesia have benefits in this regard and also have the least interference with the woman's ability to care for her infant. Where possible, day surgery is preferable to avoid disrupting normal routines. A woman having day surgery should have a responsible adult stay with her for the first 24 hours. She should be cautious with co-sleeping or sleeping while feeding the infant in a chair as she may not be as responsive as normal. Now let me interrupt briefly here to say that in regards to co-sleeping, 
Red Nose, the organisation that provides the infant and child safe sleeping guidelines within Australia, have a fact sheet on safe co-sleeping practices. For those listeners that don't know what co-sleeping is, it's where a parent and a child share the same sleep surface or bed. Now, the Red Nose guidelines clearly state that co-sleeping is contraindicated if one or both of the parents have taken medicine that results in feeling sleepy or less aware. This holds true for a parent within 24 hours of having had a general anaesthetic or sedation or a parent taking post-operative opioids. If parents aren't aware of this and continue to co-sleep, it increases the risk of asphyxiation to the child. To continue, breastfeeding support should be accessible for lactating women undergoing surgical and medical procedures. And finally, patient information leaflets and additional resources should be available containing information on the compatibility of anaesthetic agents and analgesics during breastfeeding and the guidance of breastfeeding support in the perioperative period. We encourage all of our listeners to be aware of the support available for breastfeeding patients in your own institution. Okay, we're on the home stretch now. So let's drive home this episode by talking about those things that are important to discuss with a breastfeeding woman perioperatively and planning for the anaesthetic. Keep in mind that a breastfeeding patient may not necessarily be forthcoming about breastfeeding as they may either not have considered it significant or relevant to mention to the anaesthetist or may be concerned that they'll be subject to judgment or critical comments, particularly of breastfeeding an older child. It's a good point. Mm. The following should be considered preoperatively and discussed with a breastfeeding patient. Do they wish to continue breastfeeding? It's not our job to discuss a person's choice to breastfeed beyond encouraging them to continue breastfeeding should they wish to do so. Also, the most suitable type of anaesthesia that is the least disruptive to breastfeeding. The transfer of drugs to breast milk, both intraoperatively and postoperatively. You should also discuss the risk of this versus the benefits of continuing to breastfeed. And also discuss the expressing and storage of breast milk if the child is unable to stay with the patient on the ward or if prolonged surgery is expected. Ideally, this conversation should occur with an expert in infant feeding or other specially trained staff member. Further considerations for perioperative management should include that patients should be advised that the pump and dump of old is not necessary. That said, some patients may wish to ensure that their child is not exposed to any medication at all and may want to discard their breast milk regardless. If this is the case, then that's fine too. Evidence-based material on the elimination time of the drugs that they are exposed to should be provided to ensure breastfeeding can resume as soon as possible. And fasting times should be minimised to avoid dehydration as this can have a large impact on milk supply. An effective anti-emetic strategy should be used and this may include prophylactic treatment. Regional anaesthesia has the advantage of providing the least interference with a patient's ability to care for an infant. These techniques should be encouraged. Opioids are more likely to be required if a general anaesthetic strategy is used. When using opioids while breastfeeding, the patient should observe their child for a change in behaviour and if any sedation or drowsiness develops in the child, then medical advice should be sought. The order of sensitivity from adverse drug effects as a result of an immature hepatic and renal function is as follows. It is greatest in the preterm infant and lessens in severity through neonates, with the least sensitive group being young infants. Extra caution should be taken with infants less than six weeks of age corrected for gestation. Remember that signs of excessive effects from opioids in the patient undergoing anaesthesia should be used as an indicator of potential effects in the breastfeeding child. Multimodal analgesia should be encouraged, and if opioid analgesia is required, then the least effective dose should be used for the shortest period of time, with morphine being the preferred agent. Day surgery is preferred for breastfeeding patients, but additional considerations and support are necessary if they require an overnight admission. Supportive care for inpatients that are breastfeeding includes the following. Provision of an appropriate environment to breastfeed or express milk before and after surgery. 
restriction of separation of the patient and the infant to the minimum period necessary, scheduling surgery to allow a patient to either express or breastfeed as close to the surgery as possible to ensure appropriate infant nutrition and to minimise the risk of breast engorgement, access to appropriately trained staff if required, a local policy to support breastfeeding women while they are in hospital that provides staff with guidance on the requirements to facilitate ongoing breastfeeding. In summary, there are many things to consider preoperatively when planning an anaesthetic for a breastfeeding patient and also many things to discuss with your patient. Just as you likely have a list in your mind of what to give and what not to give to a patient post-heart transplant, we'd encourage you to keep a similar list specific to what to give and not to give to a breastfeeding patient. When conducting your preoperative assessment, be sure to allow extra time to discuss your patient's breastfeeding plans and be prepared to provide information and advice on making breastfeeding perioperatively as safe for both the patient and their child as possible. And keep in mind that even though this conversation may not be particularly important to you as the anaesthetist, it's likely to be very important to your patient and a great source of potentially avoidable and diffusible stress. Well, thanks for sticking with us through what has been quite a content-heavy discussion. Before we leave you, though, Kate, what have you learnt this week in anaesthesia? Well, I found myself in an unusual situation this week where I had a last-minute patient addition on the end of a list. So this is at about 5.30 in the afternoon. And this patient, thankfully, was very forthright in coming across and telling me that they'd previously had front of neck access for a failed intubation at another health institution. Oh yeah, that just made my day. But interestingly, when I went through the system and tried to search for any record of this failed intubation in this front of neck access, there was none. So it was one of those situations where it was late, people were starting to leave, so I had limited access Mm. to assistance if if it was necessary. And though I really, really wanted to rush through this and to get it done as fast as possible, I took my time, I planned everything out to the nth degree, and consequently everything went really well. And I think it just goes to show that sometimes you really, really want to just do something quickly and get Mm. out of there as fast, fast as possible and be done with a bad situation. But gee, just take your time, hey, because you you never regret taking that extra time. geez, I think I'd really regret if I'd rushed into this intubation. That could have been very scary. Yeah, I think the old halt, you know, hungry, angry, late and tired. If I have two of those factors, I'm extra careful. So I had the opposite problem. I worked an extra shift a few weeks ago on the weekend and a patient turned up who I examined and thought they had quite a difficult looking airway. Asked the patient, no, 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 everything's been fine previously. But when I had a look through our department's difficult airway alerts, there was one sitting oh, gosh. there. So, um, so uh, yeah. So we had very different situations. I had a patient that was very forthcoming about their difficult airway, mm. and you had one that was very tight lipped about it. So I suppose the moral of both of these stories is if you have an index of suspicion or your spidey senses are tingling, so to speak, take the time, you know, do the extra sleuthing, work out what you're going to do, mm. and just don't be rushed into doing things. Yeah, I agree. So so we also just wanted to acknowledge um, we have been a little bit slack in mentioning some of our we positive have. reviews. We have. Now, we know that about 70-something percent of you listen on Apple Podcasts, so this doesn't – if you're on Spotify or something, you can't actually leave reviews on Spotify, but we do get lovely reviews on Apple Podcasts. And today um, we're just going to read a couple and we'll mention all of them that come through. But today I've got um, Dr. Sarah Bow. Hi, Sarah, assuming that's your real name, Uh, who says, uh, as an anaesthetic consultant, this series is great to review all the topical issues at the moment. Fabulous variety of speakers and delivered in a very digestible manner. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much. And we also have a review that states, 
Great content presented in a concise, digestible format. Love it as a way to revise important topics in the podcast format. Highly recommended. And that's from Mazzy71. Mazzy71, thank you so much. Thanks, Mazzy. Thanks for listening along with us today on Deep Breaths. As always, please listen, rate and recommend us to your colleagues. We can be found on most podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify and Google. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions for topics or interviewees, please email us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We respond to every email and we really appreciate your suggestions. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us again next time on Deep Breaths. Deep Breaths.